the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Harbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's a brand new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions or life questions or anything else that's going on. Uh, We'll see what Jesus would do, and I'll do the best I can to make sure you understand it. All you need to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, at 630-5757. You can email your questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Uh, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Uh, banner will come at the top of your screen. It says call now and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time for our main number. It's 340-9585. Hope you had a great day in church yesterday. Uh, we did. Uh, we mentioned on Friday this was our annual business meeting. We did our three services in the morning, and then last evening at 5, we had our business meeting. We It's the time we get together and share with the church the money that came in, how we spend the money, um, you know, just those kind of issues, and, and then answer questions for anybody who's new about what we are at Calvary Chapel and uh, what makes us a Calvary Chapel, those kind of things. So we had a good turnout last night and a good meeting, and I hope that uh, your weekend was equally fruitful for Jesus. Ours was. Uh, before I get into some questions, and we'd love to have you start dialing now, um, I want to say to Margaret in Floresville, thank you very much. I got yours and Natalie's letters to me today, and uh, I couldn't be more more thrilled that you took the time to write. And you can rest assured that Natalie's picture is going up on my prayer wall as soon as I get home. So uh, we got it today, Margaret. Thank you. And I am keeping your situation in prayer. Thanks for letting us know what's going on. Okay, well, let's get to some questions that have been sent in, and then we'll uh, wait for some phone calls. The first is really more of a comment than a question. It's from a regular listener uh, from our email inbox from Dorothy. Um, she says, good morning, Pastor Ron. Thank you for your radio program at 5 a.m. I'm grateful to God for you in Calvary Chapel in my listening area. Uh, reading the Bible. You mentioned the fifth grader reading. I commend these for getting started early. Uh, I know you concur. You know, to enter public school, you had to be six years old on or before September 1st. And since my birthday was in November, I was nearly one year older than all my classmates. Uh, I was 12 in fifth grade. Even so, while I was seeking God at age six, I wasn't delving into scripture, but I'm making up for any lost time. God bless you for that, Dorothy. Uh, so she says, I want to encourage your young friend. That was a, a young boy who called in. Uh, for I have found myself ignoring my reading in his word. As for me, 
uh, Hebraic class. It's like heaven. There are lots of worldly things that can draw us away and take us in the wrong direction. Grateful for God's ministry through Calvary. And then she puts double meaning in parentheses. Uh, Thank you for that, Dorothy. Thank you very, very much. And then she says, praise the Lord. What a gift. Uh, Dorothy, it's always good to know you're doing well. Um, my my sight, as you know, is not as bad as yours. I can still have Paula read to me, and uh, if I get really, really powerful goggles, I can read my Bible. So uh, I, I think that that young um, fifth grader was, um, um, for all of us, um, an encouragement to read our Bibles. Don't just bring them to church. Read them. Always praying for you, Dorothy. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from our email inbox from Nacho. He says, I'm reading Joan. I've been enjoying uh, reading this book for many reasons. However, what caught my attention this time around, um, what I found interesting is that Jonah was a reluctant prophet. God worked through him in a spectacular way, even so Jonah did not want to preach the word. What is your opinion about reluctant pastors today? Many who do the work of a pastor but don't have the heart for the calling or the passion for the people in their care. Does God work through other leaders in that particular church to minister to the body, even though the leader will not and does not, or will not, and does God really leave that leader in such a position for very long? You know, Nacho, there's a whole bunch of pastors. I'm going to talk about Jonah in a minute, but there's a whole bunch of pastors who who really shouldn't be pastors. I had a, a friend one time, he told me, uh, he was felt called to be a pastor, and then he asked me the question. He said, "But Pastor Ron, do you have to like people to be a pastor?" And my response to him was, "Of course, people are the point. People are the ones for whom our Lord died. Of course, you got to like them as much as like them. You got to love them. And sometimes, loving people that you don't like so much—that's our job as a pastor. People are not likable at times, but you still have to love them." and tell them the truth. So um, let me just say, Nacho, uh, reluctant pastors today, I, I have a, maybe a slightly different view um, than, than you do. The reluctant pastors that, that I'm concerned about are those who are reluctant to declare the whole counsel of God, those who are more interested in making people get goosebumps or uh, chuckle at funny stories, uh, or who um, dumb them down to 20-minute little sermonettes, um, um, and all because they want people to like them or they want people to come to their church. Uh, we had yesterday here at Calvary Chapel Nacho a, a, a really difficult Bible study. I, I uh, You talk about direct. It was really, really direct. And if I would have avoided teaching that Bible study, um, it would have demonstrated that I didn't really love the people at all. Uh, we had a great response in all three services yesterday to the message. Um, God wants to get people to church. He wants to deal with their hearts. He doesn't want them just in church. God's not taking roll call. Okay, well, they made it to church, so I guess they're okay. I'm, I'm not going to be mad at them. Instead, what he wants us to do is come to church to be equipped to do the work of ministry. That's Ephesians chapter 4. What he wants is for us to hear the word, be taught, let the Holy Spirit convict our hearts. And he wants us to change. And if we'll change and turn from disobedience to obedience, if we'll repent of our sins, then the Lord has accomplished the purpose for bringing us to church in the first place. And my job as a pastor, my goodness, I... I I dare not alter his message. It's his message. It's not mine. And he's the one who gives the orders. So um, I hope that makes sense to you, Nacho. Let me talk about Noah for a moment. Noah wasn't so much a reluctant prophet as he was a willfully disobedient prophet. And by that I mean he didn't want to go to Nineveh. Now, Jonah, no doubt, knew some of the earlier prophecies about how the people of Nineveh, the people of Assyria, would absolutely brutalize the northern tribes of Israel and come against even the south, although God would spare the south from utter destruction. Uh, He knew how evil they were, how wicked they were. 
And now, at this particular time in Jonah's life, he gets a message, go to Nineveh and, and preach that city to repent. And Jonah knew that if he did that, they'd repent. And I'm thinking that Jonah probably would just have soon they didn't repent, so God could have destroyed them and perhaps saved the northern tribes later and the hundreds of thousands literally that would die at the hands of the Assyrians in the south. Um, but God had a purpose. I love the line in Jonah. He said, well, what right do you have to be angry? What if I have 120,000 in Nineveh who don't know their right hand from their left? There's a whole bunch of a, a unaccountable people, kids, that God was going to spare. And so Jonah reluctantly went. Actually, he was forced to go. And he preached, and they repented. And the one thing I love about Jonah's preaching is that for 80 years, the people that he preached to served God. Gentiles. But they served the Lord. They turned from their wicked ways. And then, of course, they fell back in the pattern that history proves people have always fallen into of being disobedient. So it's great. You know, Nacho, one of the things you can think about as you read through Jonah is uh, um, just be amazed at, at the, the, just the circumstances that people repented. And I always wonder, well, well, I would have repented too now. I want you to think about Jonah being in the whale of a fish or in the belly of a fish for three days. Stomach acid would have eaten away his hair and his clothing. He would have come out of that fish looking a pale, noxious green. And you want to know why the people listened? If you saw a naked, bald, bleached guy yelling, repent or judgment's coming, you'd probably believe him too. God is faithful even when Jonah wasn't. Good question, Nacho. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Patrick asks, Pastor Ron, is there a minimum age for you to consider baptizing kids? Patrick, this is always a tough one. Uh, our primary baptism event, we have one every summer where literally um, 500, 1,000 people will come out. And we always have a long line. I'm in the water anywhere from two hours to three hours baptizing people. And we've got others in the water there with us. And, um, you know, when kids are at the lake or at the river and they, they see other people getting in the water, they want to do it too. And um, so it's not for me so much a minimum age. I want to ask them the question, tell me why you're getting baptized. I want to know if they have a basic understanding of it. And then I'll be willing to baptize them. You know, Jesus said, suffer not the little children to come unto me. And I'm always going to err on the side of baptizing them because if they get baptized and they really didn't understand what they were doing, um, then the act of baptism doesn't save them. But it is a testimony of Jesus to them. And, and we can once again later in their life, when they are more accountable, uh, we can go through the, the, the ceremony of baptism again. Uh, but uh, I just want to know they have some basic understanding at least, and then I'm going to err, as I said, on the side of baptizing them because uh, I certainly wouldn't want to send a, a little kid home crying. Uh, Pastor Ron wouldn't baptize me, and I wanted to get in the river. Um, we we want to let them know that Jesus loves them, and whether or not they understand everything, believe me, Jesus does, and I believe with all of my heart that when these young kids make professions of faith and especially public professions uh, like in baptism, I know Jesus takes very seriously their confession and he's going to follow them and he's going to sort of nudge them back into that path where they need to be. Um, so I, I, I err on the side of, of baptizing them. Here is a question from Valerie. She asks, as a woman, how can I express to other progressive women that we should not be pastors in the church. Valerie, you don't have to persuade anyone. Just read the scriptures to them. This is one of the things that is difficult for me to understand. And by the way, Valerie, you're the progressive woman. You know, we, we've words have lost meaning. Progressives aren't people. They're not being progressive if they're being disobedient to God. 
I understand the modern cultural use of the term progressive means um, um, liberal or more open. But as a woman who loves Jesus, Valerie, all you have to do is hand him First Timothy chapter 2 and tell him to exegete that passage. Not eisegete it, exegete it. Read the passage, understand the words, and tell me what they mean. And I've never had a woman who wanted to be a pastor or thought women should be a pastor take me up on that. They always start, well, but you don't understand, this is a different time and, and that was a culture where women didn't have any rights and now we have equal rights and I feel called to be, but they'll never exegete the passage. I do the same thing, by the way, Valerie, when people want to try to convince me that you can lose your salvation. I won't argue with them. I'll just give them Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, and I'll say, okay, exegete that passage for me. Tell me what it says. And I want them to do it with no yeah, buts. And so just open the scripture to them. The context there is order in the church. There's a hermeneutic principle that says when the writer of a book goes all the way to Genesis to, to establish a foundation for a teaching, then it is a teaching that is for everyone through all times. We don't see the same thing in 1 Corinthians when he says um, um, women must be silent in the church. That's just a cultural issue. There's no Genesis reference. So just read the scripture, give it to them, and pray for them. But don't make this a woman issue. This is a church issue. And Jesus, we're told, is head of the church. That means he gets to make the rules, and we don't. So I think, Valerie, that's all you need to do. Uh, here is a question from Michael. He says, Pastor, what do you make of the split that seems to be coming in the United Methodist Church over LGBT issues? Uh, Michael, uh, in theory, uh, they've been split for a very, very long time. There is a whole segment of the uh, United Methodist Church. In fact, this is the larger segment uh, between the two factions um, that has been... Um, in favor of of affirming LGBT issues and same-sex marriages and even gay uh, pastors and gay women pastors, lesbian women pastors. Um, so what I make of the split, the split was bound to come. The problem isn't the apostate side of the United Methodist Church that, that gives in to these kind of issues. I think the problem is the other side of the church. Now, we want to support them in their stand uh, against same-sex marriage and, and, and affirming homosexual behavior. However, both sides of the split many, many years ago threw out the Word of God. And when you throw out the Word of God, when there's no standard for preaching, there's no standard for practice, then we do what seems right to us. And the United Methodist Church, Michael, uh, unfortunately has turned into the book of Judges. Oh, by the way, mentioning that, I forgot to say at the top of the program tonight, ladies, we have our our ladies' Bible study. Paula will be teaching, and she's teaching in the book of Judges. Uh, we'll have our, our men's study. Dr. Peter will be teaching tonight. Um, Dr. Pastor Peter will be teaching tonight. Uh, and then we've got our high school and junior high school studies uh, at the same time, 7 o'clock here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Ladies, you can watch Paula on live stream at calvarysa.com uh, beginning at 7 o'clock. So, Michael, back to your question. The, the, the problem happened a long time ago. This church has become apostate uh, in lots of different ways, and um, that's always going to be the end when we just decide the Bible is not the single standard for practice and teaching. When we come to that conclusion, we have lost our compass and we're going to stay lost. And both sides of the United Methodist Church are lost. What's really sad is there's still a few real Christians in the United Methodist Church. And they're often very loyal Christians are still in the UMC because they've been uh, Methodists for all of their lives. I often say that if John Wesley... Um, knew what was happening in the church that he founded, the Methodist Church in this country, uh, he would be as upset as you can possibly be in heaven. 
Um, but um, Michael, the split was um, inevitable. Um, pray and support our people, at least the people who are um, on the right side of this issue. At the same time, prayed that both sides of the split would come to Christ, come to the Bible, and then be a blessing to those in the United Methodist Church who remain there and, and are saved. 340-9585, here is a question from Larry. He wants to know, can Christians be demon-possessed? And how do you cast out a demon from someone? Now, Larry, I don't know if this is in response to my uh, the Bible study that I did uh, yesterday from Luke chapter 11. Um, but uh, Christians, I said this in the program yesterday, or in the, in the sermons yesterday, all three services, you, Christians cannot be demon-possessed. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. It doesn't say uh, than the other he who is in us. Um... Once the light of God comes into your heart, all the darkness has to go. And so Christians cannot be demon-possessed. It's very important we understand that if we would do that, then we wouldn't get tricked by these uh, ministries out there that are are pretending to cast demons out of people. And um, it sells, people will pay for it. But at the same time, Christians cannot be demon-possessed. The devil hates us, and he's going to huff and puff and try to blow our house down. But, but he cannot possess that which belongs to Christ. So utterly reject, Larry, any teaching that would, would indicate that uh, Christians can evil spirits, spirits of lust or spirits of cancer or spirits of you name it. The only spirit that lives in us is the spirit of Christ risen from the dead. Now, as to how you cast out a demon from someone, there's two things, and I I did talk about this yesterday Mm -hmm. in our messages. Encountering demons is a terrifying thing. Um, You can be physically ill. Uh, Demons have real power. Um, You will hear and be exposed to uh, such ugliness. Um... It's hard. I can't explain it on the radio. Um, You risk physical injury because there are times when demon-possessed people are unbelievably strong. But the way you cast them out is just to speak directly to the demon. And there will be the supernatural power of God there and you'll have the power to cast a demon out. You've got to be tough. You've got to stand there. And certainly... Larry, you've got to be walking with Jesus. You can't have disobedience in your life and go wrestling with with demons. You remember the seven sons of Siva, the demons jumped out of the man and beat him bloody and naked, left him bloody and naked. Um, the, The only strength that we can fight a demon in is in the power of Jesus. We can't take authority with our voice. We have to have authority by the way we live our lives. That's the most important thing to understand. The second thing to understand is that you don't want to cast a demon out of somebody who um, uh, who is unwilling to accept Christ. I don't think I did a very good job of this yesterday, but I tried to explain that when you encounter somebody who's demon-possessed, the, the, the Lord will give you the, the authority to speak both to the person and to the demon. Now, demons lie, but but God will give you the authority and the discernment to speak both to the person and to the demon. What I do... Uh, and I've encountered demon-possessed people um, on several occasions. Um, I, I talk directly to the person and tell them, look, I'll cast this demon out, but only if you're willing to accept Jesus Christ. Jesus said if, if, if he doesn't come and take over, then the demon just gets cast out. The demon would have to go, but, but then he'd go get seven other demon spirits stronger than, than, than the first, and the, and the condition of man would be worse at the end than at the beginning. And so we don't want to do that. Now, if somebody says, yes, I'll, I'll accept Jesus Christ, then the demon, I cast him out, or we just tell him, this, this person now belongs to Jesus Christ. You have no authority here. I promise you the demon will go. It may scream and, and screech, 
Uh, sometimes there's awful smells, um, but the demon will go. And then you simply pray with the person to ask Jesus into his or her heart, and things will be better. It's not a fun thing. Uh, I think, um, I've told this story on this program before my church, I've heard it so many times they can offer but Paul and I used to do a nursing home ministry before I ever even went to Bible college. It was the first ministry we ever did together. And we had a, a, a demon-possessed woman in there. We didn't know it at the beginning, but when Paula would start to read, or Paula would start to uh, to sing, she did the worship, and then I would start teaching the Bible. This lady, Judy, who had all the people that were in wheelchairs, and she'd run around that room like, like the Indy 500 in that wheelchair, and she's a little tiny, broken lady, but she had this supernatural strength. And one day, as I was teaching the Word, she started screeching, and it was just awful. And Paula touched her shoulder and said, Judy, and Paula instantly got sick, and I knew exactly what happened, and so that demon had to go. She wouldn't receive Christ, so she just went running out of the place with her, with her wheelchair. Larry, not, not a fun thing. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. We'd love your live calls and questions, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Peter. Do you agree with once saved, always saved? Peter? Um... I referred to this, not thinking about this question, uh, in, in an earlier um, question that I answered. Um, here's what I would do. I would tell you to, to read Ephesians 1, verse 14. God gives the Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. Exegete that passage. No other passage. It's a definitive statement. And if we're not secure in our salvation, with God guaranteeing it, having paid a down payment, that's what the word deposit means, sort of like earnest money in a business deal, if we can lose our salvation after that, well, let's just say you can't make that passage of Scripture say anything else. Now, the problem we have with this, and this is why this is such a hot-button subject and people disagree so vehemently over it. We all know people who claim to be saved and have fallen away from the Lord. We know people who still claim to be saved and walk through their life as though they're heathens, unsaved. And we wonder, well, you know, I know he was saved. He got baptized or, I knew her, and she was really fruitful serving the Lord. Um, look at Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. It explains all of that. If somebody really belongs to Jesus, if somebody genuinely is born again, how can they be unborn again when God is the one who's guaranteeing? And you see, Peter, this is where we have to elevate Scripture over experience. This is where we've got to hold on because God wants us to be secure. Jesus said, if you abide in me, I will abide in you. And I can promise you, Peter, there's nobody abiding in Christ who has any doubts at all about their salvation. So what do we do with the people that we thought were saved, but now they no longer profess Christ and they're living horrible lives? We have to conclude that they never were part of us. First John 2.19, they went out from us because they were never part of us. So we've got to be okay with that. There's a whole bunch of people who name the name of Christ. Jesus said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, 
didn't I? And they'll say, didn't I do this? And didn't I cast out demons? And didn't I get baptized? Jesus will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. And I hope, Peter, that, that sort of clarifies things for you. You see, the issue in heaven isn't whether or not we know Christ. Everybody knows about Jesus. The question is, do are we known by him? And if we're truly born again, then we're his. You know, Peter, I've said this on this program a few times before, but um, just, I think, Saturday, Paula's dome, she knows what I'm going to say, um, I was, was my birthday in the Lord. Um, I was 28 years old in Jesus on uh, this week, Friday or Saturday, one of those days. And um, since that very first day, 28 years later, I've never had a single moment where I doubted my salvation. I was confused a lot. I didn't know much. But I knew I'd changed. I knew that the person in control of my life was different. It wasn't me anymore. It was Jesus. I knew because there was a transformation that occurred and would continue to occur. And that's what Jesus wants for all of us. Uh, This Friday night, Peter, I'm going to be teaching in Hebrews chapter 4 about the rest that we have in Christ. And if somebody's always struggling with their salvation, am I saved? Did I blow it? Is God going to let me in heaven? Well, we can't ever have any rest if we've got those questions. So this is a question that you've got to let, personally and individually, you've got to let the Bible determine. Ephesians 1, verse 14, you tell me what it says, you tell me what it means, and then tell me what it means for you. And when you do that, you can't come to any other conclusion. If you're really saved, you're saved. Does that mean that we don't sin or don't mess up? Of course not. We do. We all do. But you see, the cell, the security is so important when we mess up because that means that I can go to my Father in Heaven. Remember, I can call Him Abba, Daddy. Why? Because I have a spirit of sonship. I've been adopted. And if I'm safe and secure in his hands, when I mess up, I can go to my daddy and say, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. Please forgive me. And the slate is completely clean all over again. So, Peter, I want you to be secure. So does Jesus. Um, Oh, that's right. Mine was Saturday. My producer was just telling me, uh, and Paula's birthday is today. I married a much older woman. She's 41 years old in the Lord. So she robbed the cradle. (laughs) Happy birthday, Paula. I know you're listening. Here's a question from Natalie. She says, I like this question, Natalie. What is the difference between the gift of prophecy and being a prophet? I ask because I've heard you say there are no prophets today. Great pickup, Natalie. Um, The gift of this prophecy... 1 Corinthians 12 tells us is for the strengthening and the edifying of the body. It's a speaking forth, not the future, not foretelling the future like the prophets of old did, but it's a speaking forth of the Word of God. Uh, when we have the gift of prophecy, uh, we're proclaiming the Word of God. And the Word of God never returns void, so as we proclaim it, there, there, there's a work the Holy Spirit is doing in the people who hear it. Let me give you a perfect example. Um, every um, three times a week for me, I, I'm, I'm teaching the Bible, and um, there are times yesterday, for example, with three services. All three services, while on the same passage and making the same general point, all three services had different things in them. Because while I was teaching, the the Lord would give me a word of prophecy um, uh, in a particular place. In, in the, the Bible study. And I would say something to third service, for example, that I didn't say in second or first service. And that always happens because the Lord is speaking to my heart. He's leading me in different directions, um, even with the same Bible study. And that's the, the gift of prophecy going forth. 
the foretelling of the Word of God. Um, the same thing happens at times when uh, you're you're talking to somebody or you're doing a Bible study, and and Natalie, you're the one who the Lord put something on your heart. That's a gift of prophecy, but having the gift of prophecy never makes one a prophet. It's really important we understand that because the standard for testing a prophet is perfection. If a prophet says something that doesn't happen, then that's a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's a false prophet. And over and over we read that in the Old Testament and in in parts of the New Testament uh, because there were always false prophets. A prophet... Ephesians chapter 2 says is one of the foundations of the church along with apostles. That foundation, the Greek says, has already been laid and the church is being built. So past tense already laid, present tense and, and future tense is being built. But the prophets and the apostles of the New Testament are the foundation of the church. And the other gifts that God gives to the church, though well, those gifts are still in existence today. So there are no prophets, Natalie. If somebody tells you they're a prophet or an apostle, you know you're you're speaking to somebody who is declaring false doctrine. I don't uh, presume to judge their hearts, but be very, very wary of those people. Having the gift of prophecy is a wonderful thing and something that we all ought to ask the Lord uh, to give to us. So Natalie, I hope that's clear. Um, anonymous question. I think maybe they're from the same person. I got this one and another one. The first one is, can a Christian marry a Catholic? Anonymous, um, when, when I get the questions, can, of course, you can do anything you want. God gave you free will. But you will be miserable if you're the Christian in that relationship. Why? Because Catholics are not born-again Christians. You're marrying somebody who's unequally yoked. Now, I want to say this. I do this every time I get questions like this. There are born-again Catholics. Not many of them, because the Catholic Church doesn't teach the need to be born again. The Catholic Church says if you're in the club, you're going to heaven, you're a Christian. That's not true. You must be born again. Jesus said that to the most religious man in Israel in John chapter 3 in his uh, discussion with Nicodemus. Um, I think the better question is, should a Christian marry a Catholic? And the answer is no. How can two walk together unless they agree to do so? Amos 3.3. 3. And there's so many doctrinal problems with Catholicism and the issues um, um, doctrinally will cause all kinds of pain um, religion can never satisfy our relationship with Christ by virtue of being born again. Um, teaches us what the marriage relationship should be. So a Christian should only marry another born-again Christian, and uh, otherwise they simply don't have anything in common. And believe me, the pain quotient uh, in unequally yoked marriages for, for people that get tired of waiting and they just marry somebody truth is we can fall in love with lots of different people. The pain quotient is always extreme. So save yourself a lot of pain and the answer is no, they should not. They can. We can do what we want. But we shouldn't do what we want. The second question, and I think it's the same person, is um, from our visions of the Virgin Mary true. Um, I believe that those visions are real but they're not visions of the Virgin Mary. It's not really the Virgin Mary. Two reasons. One, she's no longer the Virgin Mary. She is a saint in heaven who worships the son that she gave birth to on this earth. I think, Anonymous, many of those visions are demonically inspired. They're meant to deceive even... Uh, Satan himself, we're told in Scripture, masquerades as an angel of light. And they're intended to deceive. So no, the visions of the Virgin Mary are not real. But they're true in the sense that, that that's what people are deceived into thinking that they've seen. 340-9585. Phones have been quiet today. 
Nathan wants to ask, can you speak about a balanced theology regarding spiritual gifts? Um, if I understand the question correctly, Nathan, I can. Um, you know, we can go into churches uh, all over the country and and you'll see these, uh, it's a crazy charismatic churches. Now, we're charismatic at Calvary Chapel, so I'm not disparaging uh, being charismatic. The gifts are for today, and we utilize those gifts. However, the gifts have to be used decently and in order. And we've all been in churches, or most of us have been in churches, I think. We're walking, it's just a free-for-all going on. Everybody talking in tongues at the same time. Uh, that's a misuse of the gift of tongues. If you ever walk into church and everybody's speaking in an unknown language, uh, and they can say, well, it's only during worship. Even then, Paul says, if a man comes in and sees you doing that, they say, these people are out of their mind, and they would be right. So the balanced theology regarding the gifts is to use the gifts as we're given instructions on how and when to use them in our New Testament, 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. Um, they, they Right in the middle, 1 Corinthians 13, love is what motivates the use of the gifts. But the gifts need to be used decently and in order. Um, I call them goosebump churches or out-of-order churches. And so, again, Nathan, when you are in a church and you find uh, everybody speaking in tongues or you've got people coming up saying, Brother, I'm a prophet. I've got a word for you uh, from the Lord. Um, those aren't, that's not balanced doctrine at all. Um, so those are the people that you want to avoid. Um, walking in the gifts of the Spirit is a wonderful privilege for us. But it has to be on Jesus' terms, not on our terms. Hope that helps, Nathan. Thank you. Let's go to Jim calling from San Antonio on line one. Jim, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Jim, are you there? Jim, you're on the air. Okay, Jim, I'm going to go to a question, and then uh, maybe you, something's wrong with your phone. You can call back. Let's go to the next question. Tough one here. Kelvin. I think it's Kelvin, not Calvin. I might have gotten it wrong. Um he says, my wife and I disagree doctrinally about some things. One is King James only. She strongly feels it's right, and I do not. Also, she leans towards Calvinism, and I do not. How do a husband and wife settle those issues? You know, Calvin, as the head of the household spiritually, um, this is where you've got to sit down with your wife, with your open Bible, and you've got to reason through the Scriptures. Um it sounds like there's a butting of heads going on instead of um, um, let's let's just agree to agree with Jesus. The way you do that is start with Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. God has made you the head of the house, 1 Corinthians. And so you need to go to a church that's teaching the Bible from a balanced perspective. Now, there's also, I think it's important to really, really be able to talk about these issues. Paula doesn't, I'm sure, agree with me on every doctrinal issue. But she knows I'm the pastor, I'm the head of the house, and so she wouldn't contradict me. It used to be true. I think it's still true. But Paula, when she's teaching a passage, she'll listen to me teaching it before she teaches it just to make sure that she's not going to say anything that would contradict me. It doesn't mean that I'm right about everything. It just means that she understands what submission for a, for a wife is. Now, let me deal with these two issues that you brought up. King James only makes no sense logically or intellectually at all. If what the King James only people say is true, it means that there was no Bible that was the genuine word of God before 1611. It means that every foreign language Bible is not trustworthy. And of course, it means the other translations aren't trustworthy. Um, that, that's demonstrably 
provable that there's been lots of Bibles that weren't King James only that, that were God's Word. So it's just illogical, it's rational or irrational. She's probably in a fundamentalist church or from a fundamentalist church background, and they never really learned to think through these issues. The Calvinism issue, I think, is really important, uh, Calvin. Um, study the heart of God. Here's another place where you can give your Calvinist-leaning wife a Bible verse and tell her to tell you what it says. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. Tell her to tell you what that means. Sit down with her and spend a half hour and let her teach you that one verse. And when she says something, well, the world doesn't mean the world. You can stop her and say, well, wait a minute. What's your authority? Biblical authority for saying that that word translated world doesn't mean world. And then you can go to the word whosoever. What is your biblical authority saying whosoever doesn't mean anybody who will call on the name of the Lord? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So work through those things and let the Spirit of God. The most important thing is to sit down together and agree. As a husband and wife, you're going to agree with Jesus. And then he'll take you through this magnificent trip, finding out what the Word of God really says, and he will unite you guys together. Okay, Jim got disconnected, so he's back. Jim, thanks for calling back. You're on the air. Oh, oh, we got disconnected with Jim again. He's trying. Jim, keep trying. Maybe there's something wrong with your phone. I'm sorry, Jim. Okay, here is Kenneth. He writes, do you recommend John Piper's teachings? Well, Kenneth, speaking of of uh, Calvinism. Um, I do not recommend John Piper's teaching. John Piper um, says some really, really outlandish things. Um, he's very controversial. He is um, a very vocal proponent, for example, of um, God never allowing divorce for any reason when the Bible clearly gives us reasons for divorce. Uh, so I, I don't recommend his teachings. I, I think he's entertaining a little bit, but um, he's just um, not not somebody that I would recommend at all. Okay, third time's a charm. Jim, you're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron, can you hear me? I can hear you fine, Jim. Thanks. Hey, thank you for all you do for our Lord and Savior. I have a question for you that you, I, you know, I work with a Mormon, and I want a high-level uh, opinion on where I start talking to him about Jesus. Can you help me with that? Yeah, Jim, I can. Um, the, 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 the place you start always with cults. Mormonism is a cult. Jehovah's Witnesses are a cult. And they're defined as a cult by virtue of changing the nature of God. And what you do is you deal with the character and the nature of Jesus. And the one question, the only question that you're going to have to deal with them on is, is Jesus God? And they will say he's a God, uh, but he's not the creator God. He's the spirit brother of Lucifer, the, you know, sort of like the good twin and the bad twin. Lucifer, the, the devil, is the bad twin. Jesus, a good one. And, and, you know, honestly, Jim, I haven't had a lot of success with Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses if they're not willing to listen. And what they'll start out with is, well, I agree that the Bible says this, but we can only trust the Bible insofar as it's been correctly translated. And then they will go with the, well, it's been translated so many times that the translations aren't trustworthy. And that's why uh, our prophet, the angel appeared to our prophet and gave him uh, the true gospel, of course, the Pearl of Great Price and, and the, the gospel uh, according to the Mormon um, doctrine. So um, it's just focus on one thing. Don't let them drag you into to, to other conversations. Jim, one of the things that they really do well manipulating uh, uh, Christ, many Christians 
is that they use a lot of the same words. Yes, Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, Jesus died for my sins. Yes, I'm saved because I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I'm going to heaven. But ask them. You can kind of pin them down. Tell me about your concept of heaven. And it's a completely weird concept that has no basis at all in the Bible. And everything comes from um, the lies that were told by their prophet, Joseph Smith. Um, They claim to be the only true church because they still have the council of the apostles. Um, But everything about them is out of whack. There is so much information and so many good, good resources uh, from ex-Mormons who have become Christians and they understand the lie uh, out there. We've got a pastor in uh, Idaho Falls uh, and and, in other areas around Idaho Falls. Idaho Falls is, I think, the the largest concentration of Mormon population in this country uh, per per person. Uh, And they've got great, great resources, Jim. If you'd like to email us back at the questions at calvarysa.com uh, I'll give you some of those links if you'd like to, to, to know what they are. But there's a lot of information out there online and on YouTube, by the way, um, to help you deal with Mormons. But the one thing you got to do is you got to deal with the character and the nature of Jesus, who he is, he's God or he's not. Uh, and then you've got to deal, secondly, with the Bible. Um, and and you've got you to tell him, point out some inconsistencies or point out some contradictions. And the truth is, they're just going through the filter of of what Joseph Smith told them, and they have no other basis for comparison. Jim, thank you for being persistent in in calling back. Well, that's it for today. Um, We have uh, our ladies' Bible study. Paula will be teaching judges tonight at Calvary Chapel. We'll be teaching, Dr. Peter will be teaching the men and our youth. Uh, High school and junior high will be as well. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.